you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17. Took a little sabbatical from Acts over the Christmas season and then entering into January and I think it was about two weeks ago or so, maybe three, Pastor Mark picked back up in Acts and uh, so we are now into 17 but just for our sanity here, just so that we can make sure that we have our dots connected, uh, I'm going to do a brief overview. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we see these familiar words, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So as we look, we see the gospel message proclaimed and we see the gospel message on the move. And in the first seven chapters of Acts, we saw as the gospel was uh, in Jerusalem where it started and then moved from there, chapters 8 through 12, to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding area of Jerusalem. And now in chapters 13 through 28, the gospel is continuing to move to the ends of the earth and uh, last week we were in Philippi, we saw a number of places that Paul and uh, Timothy and Silas and Barnabas and a bunch of dudes are traveling through proclaiming the gospel, and uh, we are in that ends of the earth part right here today as we enter into 17. I'm a visual guy, so this is uh, to help us. We see Damascus in the southeast corner of that map, right? So just south of that is where Jerusalem is. That's where uh, Judea, Samaria is all in that area. And the gospel expanded as they traveled north. And then they started traveling northwest. I feel like a weatherman, right, all of a sudden. Okay? They travel northwest, okay, with the hot air and the cold. No. Uh, they travel northwest, and uh, we get to this area of, uh, what would that be, uh, Europe? Asia? Well, duh, because it says Asia right in front of my face there. In Asia. Right? I, I, you can tell that I failed geometry, right? <laughs> geography. Right? So we're, we're going to zoom in onto this little box right here. All right? So this is kind of where we've been at over the last couple of weeks, okay? So last week we were in Philippi, which is this red dot. And then uh, today they are traveling through uh, Amphipolis. And then they're going to go through uh, Apollonia to where? Thessalonica. So we're going to look in verses 1 through 15. We're going to see what takes place as the gospel is presented in Thessalonica. And then we're going to see what happens as they pop over to Berea and present the gospel there. So that gives you a little bit of geography of where we're going to be today. And so hopefully that will help us as we get into our text. So the gospel response. That's the title for today. Gospel response. Uh, as we go through this text today, I would like in, in, to encourage all of us to think through the preaching of the gospel that takes place, but then also the response that follows. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to give, uh, or we are given rather, an imperative to go uh, and make disciples or evangelize all nations. Matthew 28 is clear uh, on this for us. It tells us that we are to disciple and to teach so that people will obey God and his commands. So when asked, why don't we? The answers vary, but most fall under the same umbrella of fear to the response. So I could ask you, why 
might you not choose to go and evangelize or disciple the people around you at your work, at your home, wherever you are at? Right? In the passage, it says, uh, go therefore, Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore, or in your daily life, as you go about your daily life, this is what we are uh, called to do. This is what Paul is doing with his very life. Why don't we oftentimes, that, like I said, that umbrella tends to revolve around uh, our fear about how the other person is going to respond. Does anybody identify with that fear too? Right? We worry about the response. Paul and Silas take the gospel to Thessalonica and Berea. Both of these cities respond to the gospel message. I'd like for us today to pay special attention to how Paul and Silas react to the response of both of these cities in turn, uh, and in turn for us to draw a direct application from that reaction. Now for the scholarly among us, uh, this is one of those passages where as you're reading through the travel uh, of Paul and Barnabas and then they split up and then it becomes Paul and Silas uh, are moving on and then Timothy kind of enters the equation at some times. And as we look through the passage, sometimes we see that he's there or not. And so it's, in some of our passages, it's just a little uncertain. And so uh, there are some that say that uh, Timothy is, is hanging out at Philippi while uh, Paul and Silas move on through uh, Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, I can't find direct evidence just yet, but if you want to continue to study that, please do. But uh, as most of our texts say, it talks a lot about Paul and Silas and their travels, so that's how we're going to talk here this morning. All right, so let's start right at the beginning, verse 1 through 3. This is uh, the gospel preached, and Thessalonica says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. This is a proud capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It had a population of uh, over 100,000 people. Uh, to give you an idea of, of uh, what this city was like, it was the center of trade and philosophy due to its, its location. It was a harbor city. Its location on the Ignatian Way uh, made it a pretty significant place. The Ignatian Way is, is a highway, the East and Western Highway. Uh, in addition, its location on the north and, north and south trade routes made it a pretty prime spot for a lot of people to be. It was a free city governed by a local official uh, or local officials known as uh, the Politarchs. Religiously speaking, Thessalonica was committed to the Greco-Roman pantheon and the imperial cult. Egyptian cults were also prominent there, as well as a sizable population of Jewish believers. Well, excuse me. Extract the word believer from that. It just flows off my tongue so easily. Right? A Jewish population. Right? There's a Jewish population. The verse continues where there was a synagogue of Jews. Okay? There's a Jewish population. And Paul went in. As was his custom. That's something I want us to take a peek at for a second. As was his custom. As he goes to these various cities, uh, now it's, it's suggested they skipped over those first two because they were smaller. And the way that Paul typically works is he will go to larger cities and then plant a church there with the intention that that church then spreads out the message of the gospel to the smaller cities around it. Okay, So that's why he's, he's skipping over some of these other places so that he can go to a larger community, larger town, plant a church, and then let that church sprout and grow. 
we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which we read, uh, this is kind of how he operates, right? The gospel started in Jerusalem, right, and then moved out from there. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed, this is Paul wrote to Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To who? To the Jews first, and also to the Greeks. So when he goes to town, he goes to the synagogue to where the Jews are. Right? He's following the example that Christ has given in uh back that was given in Acts chapter 1. The gospel is geographically and ethnically from the inside out. We also see personally that the gospel is is spiritually transformational from the inside out as well, right? The gospel starts with the changing of our heart first and works its way out from there. This last Wednesday in youth group, we talked about corrupt and correct communication. And one of the verses that we referenced was Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, which talks about uh, our hearts, or excuse me, when our mouths speak, it speaks what our heart is actually thinking and feeling, right? From out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you want to change your words, your actions, if you will, then you need to start at the root, right? Can I get an amen? Okay, this is a heart thing first. The gospel is an inside-out gospel. Continuing on in verse 2. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now it says three days, uh, or three Sabbath days. This just accounts for the time that Paul and Silas spent preaching in the synagogue. Uh, there's a parallel text. If you want to look at First uh, Thessalonians chapters one through three, is kind of the same stuff that's going on right now. That'll give you some more information. That also suggests that Paul spent some weeks ministering also to the pagan Gentiles there as well. The text says that he reasoned with them. This means that he dialogued with them through questions and answers and that he was explaining and proving, proving or alleging, which means to lay down alongside. He proved by presenting evidence. So what he did, in a sense, is he came with their Old Testament and opened it up and he started to questions and answers as far as the gospel is concerned, but then he explained from God's word. He started explaining and proving from God's word the very gospel that he is speaking. Jews were resistant to the idea that the Messiah had to suffer for them, even though the Old Testament, as as Paul kept bringing out Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, uh, Zechariah 12, all these various texts that Paul is bringing out, the Jews were resisting this idea that the Messiah had to suffer for them. Which then makes me start to wonder from time to time, as I read through God's word, as I'm thinking through the gospel, what truths in God's word am I resistant to? What truths of God's word are you resistant to? Even though we know that God's word speaks very clearly to these facts, these imperatives, these whatever, it's there. It's God's very word. 
What, what parts are we resistant to? Jesus had to die so that he could raise again. They were resistant to this. John Stott put it this way. Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its very heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. Yeah. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this does not matter. Because the death of Jesus Christ would just have satisfied uh, the, the wrath of God for sin. It's just like any of the animals that they crucified in the Old Te- or crucified, they sacrificed in the Old Testament. Okay, that covered their sin. See you next year. Jesus would have just been that, that, that lamb that was slain for all of sin, present and past. But what about future? He had to resurrect, conquering sin and death. Now he's our living sacrifice. The resurrection is key, folks. Without it, it destroys the whole gospel, this whole religion. It destroys Christianity itself. What's the response of the Thessalonian believers here? Verses 4 through 9. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Okay, so not a few. This is Luke's way of saying it was a big crowd. Uh, leading women in the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman world, women often uh, held prominent positions. Some of them were among the devout Greeks or God-fearers who attended the synagogues, as we see in that passage. Verse 5 says, but the Jews were what? Jealous. So response, some accepted. That's a good response. But then as we get into verse 5, we see more response. We see that the Jews were jealous. Now, the, the Jews, when it, when it uses that term, the Jews, it's, it's not an all-inclusive statement. All right. In the book of John, he uses that term, the Jews, 68 times. And most of those times when he says the Jews, he's referring to the hostile ones. So the hostile Jews here, the ones that didn't like what he had to say. As I've been studying through, uh, I've been taking a class on the New Testament this, uh, over the last seven weeks. And one of the things that I have learned through that that kind of blew my mind. Some of you are probably like, well, duh. Well, I learned it, kind of blew my mind, and it was really kind of exciting. As I go through the Bible and it talks about the Jews, I just think all-inclusively. Right? But, but in reality, there are so many factions and sects of Jews, different groups of them. And as Scripture is talking, it's referring to different groups of them, not usually an all-inclusive, all Jews everywhere. Kind of blew my mind. So here, the Jews, that, that hostile group, they were jealous. Jealousy, that was their response to the gospel because they, they knew that they were losing power and influence. The high priest and Sadducees were filled with jealousy, which led to the arrest of the apostles in chapter 5, verse 17 we saw. Paul and Barnabas, speaking to the gospel at Antioch, caused the Jews great jealousy, who then began to speak a contradicting message to that of Paul, even reviling and despising him. little application for us when we go and share the gospel with other people, some may accept but there's going to be people that reject 
they, def- they, they just revile you. They disrespect you. But they're disrespecting you for the message. The gospel. Verse 5 continues. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble or, or of the, the group of Jews that were there, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying uh, that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we see more response to the gospel. They formed a mob. Anybody here ever experienced, seriously, like a mob form as you are proclaiming the gospel to people? We are fearful of how people are going to respond, usually individually or as a small group, okay? Just imagine what kind of response a mob coming after you for what you're saying. For me, this means, okay, Chris, you should not get all scared uh, about the response of one or two people, okay? Because they had a mob after them. So chill, man, right? Took them to the authorities, those uh, polytarchs we talked about. Uh, And then it gets to the part where I I think they're using some kind of hyperbole or exaggeration in their speech. Okay, Especially if you have children, you know that they sensationalize things a lot when they tell you a story. right? And so they're saying, okay, these are the guys that have turned the world just totally upside down. right? But it says, have come here also. Which means that the work of Paul, the ministry of the gospel, has preceded them. They've heard about these guys. Unbeknownst to them, their words were actually very accurate. I don't believe they meant it in this sense, but the truth of the matter is, the gospel was moving throughout the entire Roman Empire, and that was just the beginning. It was the beginning of a a movement that was going to reach out to the ends of the earth, and that includes... Wait for it. Carroll, Michigan. There should be a lot of amens right there. It has expanded throughout all the earth. Now, I'm still trying to determine if ends of the earth includes Ohio or not, but that's for another day. My father-in-law and I converse over this all the time. Right? I joke, it includes Ohio. He says, uh, he comes to preach and in, in saying that there is a, a, another king, this Jesus. And when he says another king, uh, this is the Greek word translated another, which means another of a different kind. A king unlike Caesar. Okay, them's fighting words. If you go against Caesar, man, oof. Not good. And yet you're saying that there's a king essentially better than Caesar? Unlike him? That takes gumption to say something like that. 
or just faith in something or someone higher. It says that there was money given as a security. It was a guarantee that there would be no further disturbance or commotion as a result of Paul's preaching. But this would lead, however, to Paul needing to move on. We see in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. So the money is just going to you know, subside the, the anger for a little bit. But as you and I know, once the money's gone, then what happens? I start getting cranky again, and I need more, right? Think about that this afternoon when the jello's gone or the pudding's gone or something at lunch, okay? All of a sudden, you want more. Okay, so under the, the darkness of night, they moved on. Moved on to Berea. It says in verse 10, moved by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So now we're moving on to the preaching of the gospel in Berea. This is a 45-mile journey, which you might be like, okay, that's not a big deal. That's like Davison or you know Flint, give or take, and whichever route you take. Okay, that's not that big of a trip, okay? But you're walking. Anybody want to go with me to Davison on a nice little walk? Okay, there are a couple psychotic people here that would say, yeah, me, okay. You're one of them, lady. You'd, but you would run. I would walk. You would run, right? And John, you might run too, but I would, no, I wouldn't walk either. I didn't my car, right? So this wasn't some small little journey. It was a 45-mile 45 45 journey. But here, I would like for us to notice the re, their reaction to the Thessalonians' response to the gospel. How did they respond to this? Right? Silas walking along with Paul saying, dude, that was probably not a really good idea. Maybe we should tone it down a little bit this next time. Or maybe we should take a break. Is that what he said? No, that's not what happened. They actually like, okay, who's next? Where's next on the map? Let's keep going. They had a passion and a determination to continue. So how do you respond when the gospel message of Jesus Christ that you proclaim to other people is rejected? We've already established that we're afraid of, of this part, right? How do you respond to it? Okay, not doing that again, right? Well, I, I don't know. This is, this is for you to answer for yourself right now. In your own mind, how do you respond? Are you one of those that would be like, okay, let's tone it down. Uh, maybe I'll try that again in a month. Or you're like, all right, well, who next? Right? Who's next? They immediately, or excuse me, wrong part. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So they went straight to Berea, went to the next synagogue. Response, 11 through 15. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Greek word for noble is eugenes, of noble birth. It means, uh, or well-born. The word was also applied to people who were of an open mind, they were fair or had thoughtful behavior. Notice the response of the Bereans in contrast to that of 
Thessalonica here. They received the word with all eagerness. The writer Luke identifies Bereans here as more noble because they received Paul's message with all eagerness, in addition to their examination of it through the Old Testament scriptures. So a question for you and for me, are we eager to come and hear from God? It's Sunday. Got to go to church. All right. Or maybe you're happy to go to church, but why? Why are you happy to go to church? For the coffee? (laughs) For the cookies? For the fellowship? Okay, those are good things, but are you eager to come to church and hear from God? Never mind who's standing here doing the talking. Are you eager to hear from God when you come here? In the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra is is speaking here, and uh, the Israelites, they're there, they're rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem, and all that stuff's kind of taking place uh, in Nehemiah, and they have not gotten together as their full group, because they've been off and in exile and all these various things and stuff. Now they're they're finally back together as, as one whole group, and they are asking Ezra to speak God's word. The same eagerness, the same excitement is happening back then about hearing God's word. And what's more is you guys are going to sit here for like 30, 35, maybe 40 minutes listening as the word of God is preached. Oh, and and did I say you're sitting? Okay, because in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, they were standing. That's not a big deal. I've stood for two hours before waiting for a ride at you know, Cedar Point. They stood for six hours, y'all. Six hours. Can you imagine sitting here or standing here for six hours as I just read God's Word? Okay, some of you are like, you're not going to test this, are you? Okay, I'm not going to do that today. But just think that through. Some of us are like, yeah, I don't want to do that. If so, I'm going to you know, need to get some coffee or something. They had eagerness for the hearing of God's word, but then they also didn't just listen as Paul shared this. They examined what he had to say. When was the last time that you went home after the morning service, cracked open your Bible, and examined the message? Okay, not judge the preacher and what he was dressed like or his hair cut or that he didn't have hair or anything of that nature. Okay, not, not judging the, the, the message or the, the, the proclamation of it, but the very words of Scripture, the message that was communicated. Oh, yeah, and then repeated that exercise the next day on Monday and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Saturday. With eagerness, they examined the scriptures when? Daily. These are serious people here. 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 3, I already mentioned that as a parallel passage. That would be something to consider. 
How many of you are, are going to go home today and read through those three chapters and kind of look at the parallels between that and chapter 17 of Acts? Let me let you in on a little secret that Julie already knows. I'm fallible. No way. Bless your heart. <laughs> I am just a man, a very fallible man. Pastor Mark is just a man, a very fallible man. It could be David Jeremiah standing up here preaching God's word. Another fallible man. Paul, a fallible man. So it's not that they didn't necessarily believe the person, but Okay, you're communicating the message, and, and we understand that, but without a respect of God, okay, we want to just look at it for ourselves. This should be an encouragement, a challenge to us as believers to examine the Scripture for ourselves. Is this truly what God has to say? Because maybe I made a mistake. Not intentionally, I hope, but maybe I misspoke. And you can catch that. Because what is important here? The importance is the truth. Right? So what did they do after this? Verse 12, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So the therefore believed. They didn't just listen to him and say, oh yeah, I believe you, let's go. They examined they found that what Paul had said is what God says, that this is God's word. Therefore, or because it's God's word, we believe. Okay, We don't believe you, Paul. We believe God. But you're saying what he's saying, so we believe both. Right? So hopefully you will examine what is being said from this pulpit ever, finding, I hope, that it is God's word and believe it. Not because I said it, not because Pastor Mark said it, but because God said it. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. When the brothers uh, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. So immediately this took place. But before that, I have a question: How did they find out in Thessalonica or in Thessalonia? Okay, they you didn't just text them back there and say, "Hey, they're on their way to you. Look out!" Or, "Hey, they're here." One commentator said it this way, and this is kind of an interesting thought because I, again, didn't think of it like this. Satan has his missionaries too. We have our missionaries. We got you know them on the wall there. You folks are missionaries in this area. Okay, I think of missionary as somebody that is conducting the the work of God, you know, the gospel. But you know, missionary is a two sided uh, word too. Are you communicating truth or the devil's agenda? So certainly there are going to be some that probably figured out where they came from and went back and said, hey, these dudes are over here too now. So they, they sent their posse 
over to Berea to start agitating and stirring people up. And as a result, the brothers or the, the believers in Berea immediately sent Paul off on his way. Okay? Because they recognize that Paul is really the kind of the point man here. He's the one doing most all of the, the preaching, the communicating. So if we can get Paul to safety, okay, maybe this will settle things down. Send him on his way to the sea. Okay, to, to the coast, it doesn't really tell us here in Scripture how he gets to Athens, whether uh, you know, the 45 miles to Berea was just a warm-up for the 222 miles uh, to Athens. I don't know. Uh, or if he uh, took a ship over there. Uh, it doesn't, scripture doesn't say, but he made his way over to Athens. Now you see the part I mentioned about knowing where Timothy is. Well, it's, apparently it seems like he's there, right? Well, the word there... still don't know, does it mean literally Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea or uh, Silas and Timothy remained where they were? Some would say that Timothy is in Philippi still at this point and Silas is in Berea. I'm not here to tell you which one is true because I'm not sure. Scripture isn't that clear for us that I have found yet. Study it. Let me know. So Paul is now in Athens after receiving uh, and then sends a command to Silas and Timothy where they were to come to him, the end of verse 15, to come to him as soon as possible. They departed. ASAP, Paul realized the task that he faced in preaching the gospel to this educated group of Athenians was uh, no small task. And by himself, this was going to be nearly impossible. And so he needed help. He needed help. And so he sent for help. It's not wrong. It's not weak of you or me to ask for help. A wise person knows their limitations and seeks help when needed. Maybe you've heard this. I was taught this growing up. Work harder, smarter, not harder, right? Work smarter, not harder. Anybody here ever heard that? Okay, said that to your kids, grandkids. Do they always listen? Paul knew this, and so he did the very, that very thing. He worked smarter. My study of Paul and his letters over the last number of weeks has revealed a couple of things. Three things. Paul has an insane desire for sound doctrine. Look at how he writes in his letters, right? Generally, the first half of any letter is completely dedicated to sound doctrine. And then somewhere in the middle, Romans chapter 12 is kind of that break in Romans. We're in Ephesians and youth group right now, so the first three are sound doctrine, and then the last three chapters are the application of it. But he gives a lot of time and attention to sound doctrine. He has a desire for that. Thirdly, I find that he has a passion for the gospel message itself. You can see that just in in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. You see that he has a passion, okay? He goes from place to place. He gets beat and put into prison in Philippi for preaching the gospel, for uh, taking this evil spirit out of this slave girl, right? Doing the work of God, beaten and uh, put into prison, and then he's just kind of kicked out of town. 
But he has a passion for the gospel, so he's going to move on. Go to Thessalonica, preach the gospel. They're going to form a mob and kick him out of town. But he has a passion for what? Speak it, church. What? The gospel. A passion for the gospel. So he moves on to Berea and preaches the gospel. And also he has a concern, this deep special care for Christ's church. That's why he writes these letters to these churches, to these people. And he's planting what? Churches. You just read any of his letters, you you can't help but see the care and the love that he has for these people. How do I know? He's in prison for some of them. They're called the prison epistles, right? I don't know about you, but if I'm in prison, I might have a few other things on my mind than to think about you guys right now and how you're doing. He's in prison, and all he can think about is the churches, how they're doing. Next week and, and, and moving on, we're going to start to see, uh, and if you uh, follow up with First Thessalonians, you're going to see that he has such a, a desire for these people. He sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, right? And he sends uh, Silas back out as well because he wants them to go and check on these churches, see how they're doing. But even in the midst of this desire, this passion, and this concern, Paul doesn't go alone. He doesn't compromise in any area, any of these things, for the sake of his pride. Not in Philippi, not in Thessalonica, not Berea, and certainly not now in Athens. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? It means neither should I. It means that neither should you. Do not compromise on doctrine, on the gospel, on Christ's church. If you need help, ask for it. That's part of what the church is for. As followers of Christ today, we have a mandate, an imperative, a responsibility to preach the gospel, teach sound doctrine, and care for Christ's church. We need to go and preach the gospel and leave the results, leave the response of other people up to God. As Pastor Mark mentioned last week, that should be a very freeing statement right there. Oh, their response isn't my responsibility? Oh, thank you. Let's close in prayer. Father. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for messengers like Paul who would stop at nothing to communicate your truth, the gospel to those that he would come into contact with. And even when he was shut down, beaten, enslaved, imprisoned, When released, well, even in prison, he continued to preach gospel, worship you. But then he would move on from place to place, looking for more people, presenting the gospel to more and more because of his great love for you, his passion for your word. May that be our desire. May that be our passion as well. To love other people to the point of sharing your gospel with them. 
Father, I ask as we leave this place today that you would go before us and continue to prepare our path as you prepared Paul's. Empower us, embolden us to speak your truth and deny our fears. In your name we pray, amen.